The Old Testament lesson for Septuagesima is from Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And so did Moses in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. We continue with the gradual as printed in your bulletin insert. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 20th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. There must be some sort of mistake. Maybe you've thought that before. There must be some sort of a mistake. This isn't what I ordered. You get the wrong thing from the store. You place an order and they cut the countertop wrong. Or you go to the restaurant 
and you order a big juicy bacon cheeseburger and they bring you a salad and you say, this must be something wrong here. There's a mistake. This is not what I ordered. And you think somebody messed up. Somebody made the wrong decision. Somebody wasn't listening carefully. Somebody wasn't paying attention. Somebody was being kind of mean or cruel. But whatever it was, there was a mistake. And all you have to do is really to fix the mistake. Let's just set things right. Let's get things back in order. This is a mistake and we can straighten it out. That's what the people of Israel thought as they were in the wilderness and there was no water. There must be some sort of mistake. There should be water. We need water to drink. There should be water. What did you bring us out here to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God must have messed up. He must have made a mistake. Like those first-hour workers thought in the parable in our gospel lesson, there must be some sort of mistake. First of all, they thought maybe there was a mistake as those last hour workers were receiving the same wage, but this is going to be a mistake in our favor. He said he was going to give us a denarius and we're going to make out even better in the end. And then, and then when they received the same wage, they think, he's messed this up. There must be some sort of a mistake. Something is not right. God had brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery sending the ten plagues to punish Pharaoh, to put to shame the gods of Egypt, he had worked wonders. He had spared his people, saved their firstborn sons by miraculous rescue. He brought them to the edge of the Red Sea, and even there he parted the waters in a way that no human ever could, brought them through on dry ground and destroyed their enemies behind them. He's given them freedom and life and a hope for the promised land. That's where you're headed. You're headed to the promised land, the land that God said he would give to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And now, as they stand in the wilderness, there's no water. Maybe we took a wrong turn. Maybe this isn't the route we were supposed to be following. Maybe this is your fault, Moses. Maybe you should have known better. You should have paid attention to the fact that there was no water here, and so they quarreled, which is a pretty violent word, actually. Moses says, they're ready to stone me over this. What am I going to do? He prays to God, God, you need to sort this out. There must have been some sort of mistake. Or when that master is giving his wages, they must have thought that he was out of his mind. This guy doesn't make any sense. He doesn't reckon things the way that anybody else reckons. His ledger is all out of order. His accounting is poor. He doesn't know what he's doing with his money. There must be some sort of mistake. Kind of like that older son in the parable of the prodigal son who when his younger brother comes back after having squandered half of his father's inheritance on reckless living, sees his father throw a party for that wretch. There must be some sort of mistake. You've never thrown a party like that for me, the older brother says. My father must be out of his mind. He's messed this up. This is a serious one. We're not going to recover from this one. You brought us out in the wilderness to die. Now, maybe in your life you don't experience that same kind of drama from moment to moment, but I'm sure, I'm sure that if you examine your life, you can find times where you've thought, Lord God, Heavenly Father, there must be some sort of mistake. This is not how it's supposed to be. You've taken me on the wrong path. You've messed this up. Somebody's messed this up. This is not where I should be. This is not what I ordered. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I deserve. The people of Israel and 
those workers in the parable think that there's a mistake for a few reasons. And it, we do well to pay attention to these reasons. The first one is very simple. And I kind of hound on this because it's so important. They think there was a mistake because they simply forgot. They forgot where they have been, where they came from, what God has done for them. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten some important things about God. In the first place, that God is all-powerful. If you ask anyone anything about God, they'll say that at the very least. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. And he showed his power. He showed his power in Egypt, working signs and wonders. Even the magicians of Egypt, the wise men of Egypt, spoke to Pharaoh and they said, this is the finger of God. They knew. They knew God's mighty power. They knew that his power was at work for his people. And the people of Israel also knew or should have remembered that God is good. Not just all-powerful, but also good. He's given them life and breath and everything they had. When they left Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. They came away richer than when they started. He's given them freedom. He's given them every good thing. He told them exactly how to live, how to survive that angel of death who is going to pass over their houses. He has given them good things, only good things. I, the Lord your God, am steadfast in love, slow to anger, and abounding in goodness. He is good, and above all, he is faithful. He's made promises. He said to them, he said to their father Abraham, this land will be yours. He said to his people, I will be your God, I will be your Lord, I will lead you and guide you like a good shepherd leads his sheep to still waters and green pastures. He had promised, he had sworn by his own name, I will do it. But the people forgot. They forgot all of those things, and then they began to imagine that God was a man like them. That he makes mistakes like they made. That he didn't keep his word the way they didn't keep their word. That he wasn't always good the way that they were not always good. That maybe he's not powerful the way that they, in this moment, felt weak and frail and helpless. They forgot who God was. And then... And then they began to make some comparisons. Look, we made a trade here. We left Egypt, and in leaving Egypt, we left behind all kinds of good food and water in abundance. And now you've brought us out of Egypt, we left that behind, and what do we have to show for it? Sand, dust, going nowhere fast. That is not a good deal. They held up their ledger books and they saw that God's accounting was off. They were coming out on the short end of this deal. They had lost something, kind of like those first-hour workers were keeping score. And when they got to the end of the game, they realized that they'd been cheated. Their scorebooks didn't add up. The accounts didn't balance. Somebody has gotten this wrong. That comparison, that scorekeeping, that accounting, that gets us into all kinds of trouble. God does not reckon things the way that we do. And it starts with this. St. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? That is to say, what do you have that is not a gift from God? There's no accounting when it comes to gifts. There's no scorekeeping, no bookkeeping. They're just gifts. That's all they are. They're just bonus. You can't even count it profit. There's no loss. It's just something over and above what you deserve. And that is how God deals with us from beginning to end. Gifts through and through. 
From the first breath that you took to all of the food that you've eaten your whole life long to the shoes on your feet and the clothing on your bodies to the roof over your head, it's all been a gift. Most importantly, this, the forgiveness of sins, promises, life, and salvation. Even with those workers in the vineyard, when they were paid a wage, they didn't pay attention to this fact, that being a laborer in that kind of a vineyard, with that kind of a master, that is a gift. That is a gift. To be brought into the employ of someone who is so generous and so kind and so gracious, who will just throw his money at people, who will just give it away with reckless abandon, that is a gift. A fair living wage, that's what he paid them, that's wonderful, but more important, more valuable is this, that they worked for a good master. It was a gift. Sin and unbelief react against gifts and against goodness. It's kind of like the sin in our hearts and our unbelief is like gasoline and God's goodness is like a fire. And when our sin comes close to the fire of God's goodness, it just makes it burn hotter and brighter and we react against that. That's how these workers in the vineyard reacted there's kind of a poor translation in our text. I don't like to do this all the time because I don't, it, it, usually our translations are very good, but this one matters. At the end of verse 15, it says, Or do you begrudge my generosity, which is a fair way of translating it, but literally, literally what it says is this, Is your eye evil? Is your eye evil because I am good? That's the question the master asks. Is my goodness making you upset? Is my generosity making you angry? Has your eye become evil because I'm so good? Are you going to become more evil the better I am? That's the question. That's what happens when sin and unbelief encounter God's goodness. For unbelief, it's intolerable. God's goodness burns too bright, too hot. There must be some sort of mistake. You can't be that good to those people who don't deserve it. I deserve better. God's goodness reacts with our sin. But notice this, it's not, it's not the heat and brightness of wrath that really grates on us. We chafe under the weight of God's wrath when we feel guilty for our sins. We do. Just like the people when they saw God's glory on the mountain said, Moses, you go and talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. But what we chafe against more than that is God's goodness. That he would be so kind to so many people who don't deserve it that he would be so generous and lavish with his gifts. Is your eye evil because I am good? This is how we are with the remaining sin in our hearts, the latent sin, the sin that lingers in our flesh. We struggle. We struggle not to think from time to time and maybe often that there must be some sort of mistake. When things don't go the way we think they should, when we suffer, when we struggle, Materially, when we don't have the things we think we need, when we feel pain, when we feel sorrow, when we feel loss, we think there must be some sort of mistake. Did you call me out of that, that slavery? Did you forgive all my sins just to give me a miserable life? Did you send Jesus to die on the cross and raise him from the dead just to make me unhappy? There must be some sort of mistake. Or when we are confronted with our sins, when we are confronted with the guilt that we bear in our hearts because we have not obeyed God's law, we say there must be some sort of mistake. It can't be that that's what you're really asking of me. You can't really be asking me to give up the desires of my heart. 
the things that I long for, the things that I cling to. God forgave us our sins for the same reason that he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He forgave us our sins in order to free us from sin and to give us a new life. There has been no mistake. There's been no mistake. It is not as though along the way a wrong turn was taken. In fact, look at the lesson. God brought the people of Israel exactly to the place where there was no water. He took them there. He took them to a place where they would thirst. He could have taken them someplace where there was water, but instead he led them on a path of thirst and trial. Now that doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound hopeful. It sounds like maybe God is being nasty and mean. But remember, remember that he is good and faithful. And what he does for the people of Israel is the same thing that he does for us, the same thing that the master in the vineyard did for those workers. He puts us to the test so that he can teach us to trust in him, to receive from him every good thing. His generosity is so lavish, so great, beyond comparison, that unless we learn to trust in him, we can never receive from him all of the good things that he wants to give us. We'll balk at them. We'll chafe at them. We'll think that other people have gotten a better deal. We won't receive it with faith. And so he teaches us. He takes us to places where there is no water. He makes us thirst so that we have to ask, Lord God, be merciful to me. Lord God, you save me. So that we learn not to quarrel with Moses, so that we learn not to grumble against God, but so we learn instead to plead with him to do exactly what he said he would do to give us everything that we need to bless us and to bring us home. It's a better deal. It's a far better deal than we deserve. On account of our sin, we deserve for God to leave us, to leave us on our path to hell, just as he ought to have left those people in slavery in Egypt. They deserved it. But he does not. He gives us better than we deserve, and more than that, he gives us even better than we can imagine. So we think we know something of the goodness of God. You think you know something of the goodness of God, but it is better even than that. And that is why he teaches you to trust in him. As surely as when Christ hung on the cross and was mocked and scourged and left for dead, as surely as that was not a mistake, it was not a wrong turn, nobody messed up in your salvation, neither will God lead you astray. There is no point on this path However miserable it may feel, however much you may suffer, however lost you may seem, there is no point on this path where God has made a mistake. Instead, he simply invites you to trust in him, to believe once again that he is good and gracious and kind, that he has made you unbelievable promises, and that he has to work on your hearts so that you will, in the end, trust him. Take a cue from what St. Paul says about the people of Israel. He says, God was not pleased with most of them. Although they had all of these marvelous signs from God, God was not pleased with most of them because they did not trust him. In the end, they abandoned the faith. They said, I believe that there was a mistake. I'm going back. I'd rather have it in Egypt. I'd rather have nothing from God than whatever it is that God is giving to me now. Do not be like them. Listen instead to the words of the psalm, Psalm 95. Today, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts 
as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, do not harden your hearts, but instead rejoice. Because it is the voice of God, a gracious and good Savior, who is calling you, and he wants to give you every good thing. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.